All right, good morning, everybody. Hope we're all extra alert this morning. After uh, last week, we were so inspired to make time for Sabbath rest. Um, maybe, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> good, good. Well, uh, either way, we are now in our third week in our Genesis series. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the Adam and Eve story. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to break up the story into two sections. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the first section, which I'm calling the Paradise section. And then next week, we'll be looking at the Paradise Lost section. Now, there is a lot to talk about in the Paradise section. And when I think of all the possible questions raised by this section and all the points that could be made, uh, I'm overwhelmed. And you guys may notice that your outlines look a little overwhelming because there are 10 points on there. <laughs> um, now, in order to narrow our focus, I'm going to let a particular question guide us, which is, what does this passage teach us about God's design for human life? What does this passage teach us about God's design for human life? You know, we could spend hours talking about uh, the details of this story, some of the inc more incidental details. We could spend hours talking about whether or not we must take every part of this as literal history or whether some of it is more symbolic and that sort of thing. We could talk about can we reconcile this with what modern gen uh, geneticists tell us about uh, um, uh, human ancestry and that sort of thing. We could talk about all those things. But if we talked about all those things, we wouldn't have enough time to talk about what I really think that this passage wants to teach us, which is what God's design is for human life. Um, so that is what we're going to be focusing on. And even with that narrow focus, I still believe that this passage has at least 10 important things to teach us. Um, now, don't get too scared. I'm going to try and go through these quickly. Um, so, and we're going to be talking about a variety of stuff because uh, this passage presents us with information about a variety of things, and all of them are important. So hopefully, even if some of them aren't as interesting to you as others, there will at least be a couple that really stand out to you and that the Lord speaks to you uh, through. So if you have your Bible, open up to Genesis 2, starting in verse 4. Uh, this is where we left off last week, verse 4. Uh, Genesis, 2, chap uh, Genesis 2, starting in verse 4. Uh, this is what it says. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. All right, hopefully you guys remember the last section in Genesis that we've been talking about started with those words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the section was all about God creating the heavens and the earth. And the way this section starts, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, might sound redundant for that reason. Wait, didn't we just talk about that? Why are we talking about that again? But there's a subtle difference here. Okay, before we were learning about the creation of the heavens and the earth. Here, we're learning about something that happened when the heavens and the earth were created. And what we're learning about is the creation of humanity. 
Okay, and there's a few verses here that tell us about some of the circumstances on earth when man was created. No shrub or plant of the field had yet appeared on the earth. Uh, there was no rain, uh, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Some translations say a mist came up and watered the surface. Um, now, this right here is a great example of something that we could spend a lot of time trying to understand and figure out, but it wouldn't really address the main question that I want us to focus on, which is that what is this teaching us about God's design for human life? And so, but you're probably, if you're like me, you're still wondering, okay, what, what, what am I supposed to learn from this here about these circumstances? And I'm just going to have to be honest with you guys and tell you, you know what, I'm not sure. Uh, I read a lot to know that I'm not sure. You, talk, you listen to some uh, academics and commentators, and they will tell you, what this is telling you is that the earth was very dry when God created human beings. And then others will say, oh, actually, what this is saying is that the earth was flooded when God created human beings. Some people will say, oh, this is talking about the whole world and the conditions of the whole world. Others will say, no, no, this is talking about a particular location on earth. And all I can tell you guys is that I've read enough to know that I do not know. All right. So, but whatever the case, this is incidental to that main question, what is God's design for human life? So, uh, moving on. There is something in this section that does talk about God's design for human life, and this is the first point in your, in your outlines if you're taking notes, which is, uh, uh, ignore that, um, which is God's design is for us to be physical beings. God's design is for us to be physical beings. It says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. We are made from the dust of the ground. I remember when I was a student in high school, there was a friend of mine that I used to talk to about faith. He was not a believer. And one day he said to me, I think the Bible needs to be rewritten. And I said, well, what do you mean it needs to be rewritten? He's like, well, it needs to be updated, like the part about people being made from dirt. And I said, well, actually, I feel like that's one of the parts that's easier to handle, you know, because we kind of are, like, made from dirt, sort of, you know. I mean, we, we think we imagine God, like, taking the dirt and, like, shaping it in a, little, in a human being, you know, and then breathing on it. But, you know, practically speaking, there is, there is a logic to this. Right? When we die, what happens to our bodies? They decompose, they turn into dust. Right? And what this is saying is that we are physical. Okay? And that is part of God's intended design for our lives. And actually, in this respect, we're just like the animals. Okay? The animals, too, are made from the dust of the ground. It doesn't specifically use that language, but earlier in Genesis, it told us that when God created the, human, the, the living creatures, he said, let the land produce living creatures. What's the land made out of? The dust of the ground, right? So we, like animals, are physical. And animals also have the breath of life, too. It says that as well. We share that in common with them. Um, and that is part of God's intention, that we are physical. And one of the reasons I bring this up is because uh, there has been a trend off and on over the history of the church to think spiritual things good physical things bad, and that who we really are is like, I don't know, this, this, uh, this soul that is encased in a body, 
But notice there's no point. It doesn't say the Lord God made a man and then put him in this shell of a body that is a nuisance, right? No, it says the Lord God formed the man and breathed the breath of life into him. We are not a soul trapped in a body. We are body and soul. Uh, we are meant to be physical beings, and physical stuff is good. You know, the fact that we often think of ourselves primarily as just spirit has led us sometimes to think that heaven is just this place where we sort of float around as a disembodied spirit in this floaty realm, you know, and I guess we all communicate telepathically or something like that. And, and when people think about that vision of heaven, they go, ew, <laughs> right? I don't, I don't want to be a part of that. That doesn't seem attractive to me at all. And you know why it doesn't seem attractive? Because that's not what we're made for, right? God's intention for us is to be physical beings. And if you need any more reason to believe that, think of the New Testament, right? What does God do when he comes to earth? He takes on a physical, be a physical body, right? And even when that physical body is killed, God's victory is not complete until he comes back in what? A physical body. And that's because Jesus is fulfilling God's intention for humanity. God's intention for humanity is that we would be physical. And that's why the gospel is such good news, because our hope is not that someday we're going to live as disembodied, floaty spirits in some ethereal realm. Right? Our, our hope is that we, like Jesus, are going to have physical bodies made from the dust of the ground, but those physical bodies will not decompose. Okay? So we are meant to be physical. First point. Let's uh, continue on, starting in verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. Uh, the name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Okay. What I see in this section about God's design for human life is God's design is for us to enjoy his creation. So God plants a garden, and uh, he places the man in it, and he, he plants this garden, and he says that he has planted it such that there are trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food. Now, we'll talk more about those two specific trees next week, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But for now, I just want us to notice that part of God's intention from the very beginning is to create things for us that are beautiful, right, pleasing to the eye, and things that taste good, okay? Do you realize that part of God's intention for your life is to admire and appreciate beauty and also to eat good food? That's part, of the, that's part of the whole point. If you need to ask yourself, am I appreciating creation? Am I eating good food? And if you're not, you should get on that. 
because that is part of God's intention for your life. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, I am not encouraging us to be gluttons, uh, everything in moderation, but I do want to encourage us to see enjoying creation and you know, enjoying good food and all that kind of stuff as part of God's intention for our lives and part of worshiping him. Um, so, be encouraged. You're supposed to enjoy stuff. Uh, continuing on to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, this is a good balance to the previous point, right? Uh, our lives are not just supposed to involve rest and enjoyment, but they're also supposed to include work. Uh, notice it does not say that uh, God put the man in the garden to lounge around all day and eat until he could barely move. Uh, it says he put him there to work. So that's point number three. God's design is for us to work. You know, I think sometimes we have a tendency to think that work is a consequence of sin and that if we lived in a perfect world, there would be no work. Now, when work becomes painful toil, that is a consequence of sin. Work is not supposed to be this horrible drudgery. Uh, but work in itself is part of God's design for us from the very start. And that means that if we don't have meaningful work in our lives, we're going to have trouble feeling fulfilled. Uh, that is part of what we're made for. And again, I, I'm going to go back to talking about heaven a couple times because I feel like it always, our vision of heaven is related to very much what we think God's intention for our lives are. And a lot of the time we think heaven's going to be boring, right? Because there's not going to be anything to do. But if part of God's original intention for our lives is for us to work, then heaven is going to be a place where there's work, where there's going to be jobs to do. You're not going to be bored if you're in heaven. You're always going to have stuff to do, and you're always going to have stuff to enjoy. So uh, there will be work, and it will be the best kind of work. Now before we go on to the next section, I want to make another point. This is point number four, and it's not a point that is immediately apparent in the text, but I think it's there. And it is this. God's design is for us to be his representatives. God's design is for us to be his representatives. Now, where am I getting that in this story? Um, well, hopefully some of you are as nerdy as I am. I'm going to talk about ancient Mesopotamian rituals, and hopefully you won't get bored. Um, I have heard that in the ancient Mesopotamian world, the world where the cultural milieu in which this would have first been read, um, there was something called the, the Mesopotamian animation ritual, as it's known now. And this is how it worked. In those days, of course, people uh, had a tendency to worship idols. They would create little statues that were supposed to represent their gods, and they would worship those statues. And throughout the Bible, that practice is condemned, right? This is the practice of idolatry. Well, in those days, um, there were cultures where uh, craftsmen would create these statues of gods, and they would work on forming them. They would form the statue, and then after they formed the statue, they would then go and place that statue in a sacred garden. And then they would come back the next morning, and they would say that in the night, the spirit of this god had come to this idol and had inhabited it, and now it was a representation of that god. 
Okay, now imagine if you lived in a world where this was something that was practiced, right? And you're reading Genesis for the first time. Well, in Genesis, you see something that is a lot like that, right? Because you see God forming the human being and then placing that human being in a sacred garden. And what did we learn from chapter one that the human being is supposed to be? God's image, right? So what, right here in this chapter, we're seeing that idea that human beings are supposed to be the image of God, the representation of God, being reinforced because we're seeing this parallel with the Mesopotamian animation ritual uh, in the story. Isn't that cool? Okay, so what this is reminding us, the sequence of events of the human being being formed and then placed in the garden, is that we are supposed to be God's representatives. Not statues of wood and stone and that sort of thing, but human beings. We are supposed to be the ones who represent God. You see, we always think, oh, idol, uh, idols are bad because, you know, God's not a statue. Well, that's true. That's part of the reason why idols are bad. But the other, other reason that idols are so bad is because they're doing our job. Okay? That's not the job of an idol to represent God. It's our job to represent God. We are supposed to be the ones that show what God is like, that show God's character. So, that's number four. Um, and because... Uh, God's design is for us to represent him. Part of the whole purpose of life is for us to become more like him. So we will not really be fulfilled in our lives until we are working to become more like God and to represent him. All right, uh, we got to keep moving. Continuing on in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. So this leads us to point five. God's design is for us to have the freedom to reject his law. Now, I, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that God wants us to reject his law. Okay, certainly not. Uh, after all, we are supposed to be his representatives in the world. So we're supposed to represent what, is what he's like, so we should be following his law. And uh, God tells Adam, he warns him, this is what, what's going to happen if you break my law, right? Um, but this story shows us that God does want us to have the freedom to say no to him the freedom to either choose our way or choose his way. I think this is really important. The reason I say this is because I have asked myself and other people have asked me, why did God create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Like, why would he put that there? Wouldn't everything be so much better if that stupid tree was never in the garden? Right? It's a good question. Well, if God had never given Adam a rule to obey then Adam never would have had a choice to either trust God or trust himself. Um, and God valued that ability for him to choose that freedom so much that he gave Adam the opportunity to say no. Now, that leads to the question, why would God care so much about someone having that freedom? What's the point of that? And the only explanation that I have ever heard that makes any sense to me is if we focus on this idea that God's nature is love. 
which is what scripture tells us, that God's nature is love. And we human beings intuitively understand that love cannot be forced or coerced, that love has to be freely given and freely received in order for it to be as it should be, as it ought to be. Um, it has to be chosen. And so God gives Adam the dignity of being able to choose to obey and trust him or not. And God wants us to have that same dignity today. And I think that one of the practical things that we can learn from this is that we have to allow other people that freedom in their lives as well. Um, it's, it, now, it's not, there's nothing wrong with trying to encourage people to do what's right. We should do that. There's nothing wrong with even warning people, look, if you don't do this, this is what could happen. These are the consequences that could befall you. But we should never try to control or manipulate people. We have to allow people the dignity to make these choices. Um, and there is something ugly about trying to control and manipulate people. Why? Because that's not what God created us for. That wasn't his intention from the beginning. God wanted to give us this freedom to choose his way or choose our own way. Okay. He designed us for freedom. And as for the tree them, trees themselves, we'll talk, those two specific trees, we'll talk more about them next week. So stay tuned for that. Okay, continuing on in verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. So here we have point six, which is God's design is for us to have authority over all other creatures. You remember earlier I said, we share a lot in common with the animals. We're made from the dust of the ground, like the animals. We have the breath of life, like the animals. But this is where there's the, the big difference, is that we have an authority that the animals do not have. And the action of Adam naming the animals is, this, is a powerful expression of that, because there's something about naming something that demonstrates authority and power over that thing. You know, if you introduced yourself to somebody and you said, my name is so-and-so, and they said, mm, I don't like that name, I'm going to call you whatever instead, you would probably be offended by that. <laughs> you know, because you'd say, well, who are you to tell me what my name is? I tell you what my name is, right? Because there's something, there's some, it's, it's, there's something uh, authoritative uh, about telling somebody what their name is. And I think it's very interesting that God gives Adam the responsibility of doing that. You know, God could have been like, no, I'm going to name all the animals. I tell you what the animals are, and, and then you call them that. You know, but God wants Adam to participate in creation. He wants him to be involved. He wants him to, to exercise creativity, just as he, God, himself has done. Um, so he gives Adam this task of naming the animals. Uh, so we have an authority that no other creature has on this planet that is unique to us. And it doesn't give us license to abuse that authority, uh, but it does make us unique, and it separates us from all other creatures. And with that power comes responsibility. Uh, so, 
Continuing on in verse 20. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. All right, there's several points to make here, uh, and not a lot of time to do it. But the first and simplest one is this one, point number seven. God's design is for us to be male and female. In other words, a world with just men is not a good thing. Um, God, as God says, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, I want to be clear, that is not saying that it is God's will for every man to be married. Uh, we know from later in the New Testament that that is not necessarily the case. Uh, some people are supposed to be single, and that's fine. That's what Jesus himself said. And as far as we know, Jesus himself was single, too. And as I said earlier, Jesus is the embodiment of what an ideal human life looks like. Nobody's done a better job at it than him. Uh, so uh, this is not saying that all, all men must be married. Um, but what it definitely is saying is that it is not good for the world just to have men. The world needs women as well. <laughs> so, uh, God creates woman. Now, let's talk a little bit about the creation of woman. Uh, I realize that for us in the modern world, this story of woman originating from a man's rib seems pretty ridiculous, right? Uh, and Maybe it even also sounds a little insulting to women because a rib is a relatively small part of a man's body and uh, it's not necessarily an essential thing either. I, I bet you could probably survive with one missing rib. I think some people even are born with you know, a missing rib. Well, uh, to respond to those concerns, first of all, uh, if this story just seems too outlandish for you to embrace, um, I would just tell you, don't worry about that. Just don't think about that right now, okay? Um, I think that it is possible to appreciate this story and what it's saying uh, symbolically rather than literally, okay? So I would say don't get hung up on that. Um, I'm not saying that it is just a symbol and that it's not history. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just saying don't get hung up on it, okay? The second reason I would say uh, you don't need to worry is because I think that rib is better translated as side, from the man's side. Um, so when I think of this, this moment, I see something more like a cleaver coming down and just cutting Adam in half, okay? Um, <laughs> so, you know, we tend to read the passage and think of a little hole getting opened and God taking out the rib and then he shapes it, you know. But think more of like, okay, Adam getting cut in half. Um, and so, you know, when you hear spouses refer to their other, 
their spouse as their better half, you know, or something like that. I think that's a better picture of what is being described here. Um, so basically what this saying is, woman is the other half of man, or uh, the other side of man. And uh, I think that there's uh, kind of two things that are implied by all this about male and female. Okay, two things this implies about male and female. The first is men and women are complementary. Okay, we are not entirely the same. If we were entirely the same, then man would still be alone. Right? So there, there is a difference here. But the fact that woman is taken out of man says the, the second thing that it implies, which is that we are much more similar than we are different. Notice, you know, okay, what Adam says when he sees uh, Eve for the first time, he says, he says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, she's like me. Okay? So we are much more alike than we are different. We are complementary. That means that we are different, but we are much more alike than we are different. All right. So, point number eight also relates to this section. God's design is for men and women to work together. God's design is for men and women to work together. Remember, God says it is not good for man to be alone. He needs what? A suitable helper. Now, that should raise the question, a helper for what? Right? What is, what is man trying to do? What's he trying to accomplish? Well, I think we can answer that question by looking back at chapter 1. In chapter 1, when it describes the creation of humanity, uh, God kind of gives humanity a task. Okay? It's called the creation mandate. And what he says is, uh, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So, what does the man need help in doing? Well, he needs help in being fruitful, in other words, in, in using all the resources that God has given him to making the most of those things. Uh, he needs help in increasing in number. He can't make babies on his own, right? Uh, he needs help in subduing the earth, basically in, in bringing greater order to the world around him and reducing the chaos, right? He needs, he needs help in that. He needs help in ruling over the rest of creation, over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and all that stuff. He can't do all this on his own. He needs the help of a complement who is very much like him, but not exactly like him. <clears throat> now, when Genesis says that woman is supposed to be a helper, um, we need to understand what it means. Okay, because I think we have a tendency to think of a helper as a docile servant. Like, oh, good little helper, you know. Um, but remember, she is supposed to be his partner in what? In subduing the rest of creation, right? In filling the earth and subduing it and being fruitful. Okay, if, if, if the man is going to have help in doing that, you know, he doesn't need, like, oh, good little helper, right? He needs somebody who's strong, you know, somebody who is, who is up for that very challenging task, right? And when we look at the Hebrew word for helper, it gives us some insight into what, what is being said here, because uh, the Hebrew word for helper doesn't have the connotation of docile little servant. 
In fact, do you know who gets called a helper more than anybody else in the Bible? Close. Technically right, God. Okay? God is the one who gets called a helper uh, more than anybody else. Uh, here's a good example. We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. That's the same word. And most of the time, when it gets used, it's referring to a helper in warfare. Okay? So the woman is like the person you call for backup when you're in the battle, and you're like, I need backup. I can't do this on my own. That's the picture that Genesis has of the role that the woman is, is supposed to fulfill. Okay? That's what the helper is. So God's design is that man and woman would be partners in filling and subduing the earth. Uh, not that one of us would be lording power and control over the other, but that we would be complementary partners in this battle, in this task that God has given us. Now, the last point I want us to notice from this section, this is number nine, so we're getting close to the end. Uh, is God's design is for us to be faithful and monogamous in marriage. God's design is for us to be faithful and monogamous in marriage. Remember, verse 24 said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, I realize the word marriage is not there, right? But basically what this is saying is, for this reason, okay, because the man cannot fulfill the creation mandate on his own, uh, because he needs help in filling the earth and subduing it and all of this, there is going to be a special relationship that exists called a one-flesh relationship. And that means a sexual relationship. And the nature of that sexual relationship is that it will be faithful and it will be monogamous. Um, so let's, let's talk about the monogamous part. Uh, I want us to notice that it is not God's design that the man would be married to many wives, right? It's just one. And that's important for us to recognize because polygamy was a common practice in the, in the ancient world, right? And actually, as we will see later on in the Old Testament, um, there will be many men in the Bible who have multiple wives, including men of faith. And sometimes people have looked at those passages and they've said, oh, see, polygamy is fine. God's fine with polygamy. But those passages are not teaching about God's created order, about God's intention, God's design. But this passage is. So this is the one that we need to pay attention to if we're looking for if we're trying to answer the question of what God's design is. You know, if, if woman is the other side of man, it, the other half, it doesn't make sense for a man to have a bunch of different halves, right? You can't have a bunch of different halves. There's only one half. And the fact that polygamy was so common, and yet this creation story um, only speaks about monogamy, is subversive and should alert us that what God's real intention here is, is, is monogamy. Okay? So that's one point it makes about marriage. And the second one is this faithfulness, this faithfulness that the one flesh relationship that exists in order to help fulfill this creation mandate should be a faithful one. Um, notice it says that, that the man will leave his father and mother and what? And be united 
to his wife. Now, I looked up the Hebrew word for be united here, and uh, this is what it says. To cling, stick, stay close, cleave, keep close, stick to, stick with, follow closely, join to. See, marriage is supposed to be fiercely faithful. The one flesh relationship is supposed to be fiercely faithful. And when you think about that, that makes a lot of sense. Because, remember, part of the purpose of this partnership between man and woman, um, not the whole purpose, but part of the purpose, is supposed to be this multiplying and filling the earth, right? Basically, to raise children. And what this is saying is that the, the ideal environment for a child to grow up in, a God's intended design, is an environment where the two halves that have contributed their genetic makeup to the existence of this person are monogamous and are fiercely devoted to each other. That is the, the ideal. Now, don't misunderstand me, please. I am not trying to say that uh, children who grow up in different circumstances are any less valuable uh, or worthy of love uh, than those who do. I'm not saying that single parents deserve anything less than our uh, support and admiration and respect and help. Um, but what I am saying is that God's ideal, his design for humanity from the beginning, uh, has been for the earth to be filled by children who are raised in homes by faithful monogamous parents. That is, that is the ideal. Um, okay, finally. I, I know that we've gone long, but there's one last verse and one last point. Verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And so the last point, point 10, is God's design is for us to be unashamed. Now, I'm not saying that this means that we should all be walking around naked. Um, the point here is that the man and the woman, as God created them, they were fully exposed, and yet they felt no shame. Uh, they didn't feel like they had to hide any part of themselves at all. Now today, we don't feel that way. Uh, we feel like we need to hide parts of ourselves in order to be loved, especially from God. Uh, because we know if we look back over that list of, of nine things that we talked about today, we know that all of us fall short of God's intended design for humanity. Right? Even when it comes down to appreciating and enjoying things, we don't even fulfill our job with doing that a lot of the time. We don't always work faithfully. We don't always use our freedom well. We don't always um, use our authority over the rest of creation well. We haven't always been faithful or monogamous in our marriages. We don't always interact with the opposite sex well, right? We don't always partner together well. There's so many things that we do that fall short of God's intended, created ideal. So many things. And we know that if we were to stand before a perfect and holy God, that none of us would be able to feel... Um, feel safe if we were totally exposed and naked before him, right? But God's intention for us was, and still is, that we would be able to be fully exposed 
and yet be at peace. That is what he desires for us. And praise God, even though we do not measure up to his intention for humanity, God has made a way for our shame to be covered. But we're talking about that next week. So, let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for these ancient words, this ancient story uh, that is so rich and so filled with so much to learn. God, I pray that we would be able to see in it your heart, your intention uh, for, for human life um, and your good purposes and your good will, God. And I just pray, Lord, that as we um, strive to follow you and um, to live in light of your love and your grace, that we would find ourselves more and more uh, fulfilling your intended design for life. And Lord, we look forward to the day in heaven where we will be able to experience uh, that intended design in all of its fullness. Um, we give you thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.